Right, as we continue our study through the Lord's ministry, again, uh, we come upon an event that's got two different accounts. So you can turn either to Matthew 8, verses 19 through 22, or the part, the location I prefer the most, my first sermon ever came out of it, was Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. We look this afternoon at the subject of the cost of discipleship. Uh, and it seems to be a theme that has really been kind of echoing throughout some of the other studies we've been doing anyway. But we'll start with Matthew 8, verses 19 through 22. It says there, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And it's interesting that it's portrayed as uh, two conflicting things. Follow me versus let the dead bury the dead. Um, not necessarily two different things, but for, them, for him to attend to the death would be something different than following him. Now the Luke account, Luke 9, starting in verse 57 and reading to the end of the chapter, reads as follows. And it came to pass... That as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. Same as above, but the follow me is delivered in a different order than the conversation. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another, and so Luke gives us a third person, and another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home, at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let us go ahead and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach our text here, Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you give us, again, understanding and wisdom. Help us, Father, to remind, to be mindful of the context, the feast that, uh, that Jesus was on his way to here. Help us to be mindful of the subject matter and who he's teaching. Help us, Lord, to put aside all distractions, to clear our hearts and minds, to truly be fed here this hour. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This shows why Jesus was not likely to be very impressed with great crowds. The people were not willing to forsake all and follow Christ, especially in crowds, especially in front of friends and neighbors and co-workers, in front of those who knew them so well. They had to, much like today, uphold the expectation that was placed upon them. They were interested in seeing the miracles, but not interested in giving their all for Christ. These three are examples of the attitudes reflected by those who do not desire to truly follow after our Lord. Perhaps you find yourself in these three. I know in different seasons of my life, I've portrayed all three characters in, in Luke's account for sure. So Lord, help us that we might have wisdom. Luke 9.23, or a little earlier in that Luke account, we read, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, he's already laid out the, the, the description of one who will pursue after him. Let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. This latter part is no light phrase. He uses this on the second man, follow me. 
There should be a singleness of purpose to our devotion to the Lord Jesus and the cause of the cross. If we are truly following after Jesus, we have no side agendas that we are looking to accomplish along the way. We are merely looking to be used and to pursue and to uh, be disciples or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. He has done the work. He has died on the cross. He has issued the calling, the sanctification, and the preservation had come before that that we talked about in Sunday school. And he is the one who's administering here, saying, follow me. And as faithful servants, we simply are to follow. These three men called Jesus Lord, but did not do what he told them to do. Luke 6, verses 46 through 49 says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep, laid the foundation on a rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man without a foundation built on a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell." And the ruin of that house was great. This is an interesting text, and I know that we've taught through it. We had to have for this chronological study, but I just want to speak to it for just a minute. He's not saying of these two different householders that the one will have storms and the other won't. You find that interesting because some prosperity gospel preaching today would lead you to believe that the one built on the foundation of a rock, built sturdy, will never face storms. Well, why was it built sturdy on the foundation of a rock if it was never going to face storms? Both homes face storms. Maybe both homes face the same kind of storms to the same degree of violence and recklessness and devastation, but the one is upheld and the other is not. It's just an interesting thing to note of Scripture there. So we have three points. And, of course, the three points are these three different men. So the first point, a certain man, number one... uh, A scribe, according to what Matthew 8, verse 19 says, a certain scribe came. He speaks, we learn from this one, uh, of personal discomfort. Again, we're looking at the cost of discipleship, and this first man teaches us of personal discomfort or what we could lose. What we could lose. Here is one that is forward to follow Jesus, but seems to have been hasty and rash and not to have counted the cost. He said, I will follow you. He not only says, I'll follow you, I'll follow you wherever you go. There are no ends to how far I will follow you. I will go where you go, as fast as you go, as hard as you go, I will be right there. This is impossible. We're invited to do it, but this is impossible. And when he hears of the possible hardships, this first man chose to not deny himself. Now understand, please, that the Lord himself describes the rigors of his itinerant ministry by illustrating himself to be without comforts of common man. He doesn't even go into what's going to happen in Passion Week or the last week before the crucifixion. He literally just talks about creature comforts. Literally, some creatures. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But I, he says... Uh, the Son of God the Father, supreme ruler of all the universe, creator of all things, I don't have a place to lay my head. Even Jacob had rocks for which he dreamed upon, but the Lord Jesus did not. That was enough for this man to think, hmm, I don't know if I could do this. Common creatures of his creation, of his own creation, 
had more than he had during his ministry. Doesn't that speak to who Jesus is? Did he not go to the cross, a sinless man, to die and cover our sins? Through and through, he is our Savior. If we mean to follow Christ, we must lay aside the thoughts of great things in the world. Again, if any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let us not try to join the profession of Christianity with seeking after worldly advantages. And we certainly shouldn't seek to be a Christian to gain worldly advantages. True Christianity doesn't have worldly advantages. It only comes with worldly disadvantages. Charles Spurgeon speaks of this first man as being charmed by what he heard. And here's what he writes. His is an unreserved discipleship which knows no time or place. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. His was an unasked for following, for the Lord had not said to him, Follow me. It was the best fruit of nature, but not the result of grace. Our king soon tests this loud, loudly expressed loyalty of the scribe by telling the new convert that he was so poor a master that beasts of the field and birds of the air were better off for lodgings than himself. If the leader fared so badly, there was a poor outlook for the follower. We shouldn't expect to be better off, better served, better cared for than the Lord, lest that care come from the Lord himself. It should be our desire and our focus to please him, to be desirous of what he has for us. And to do that, as it says there with taking up our cross daily, we have to die unto this world every day. We have to die under the desires of this life every day. We've grown so accustomed to commercials in our lives that we don't even recognize that we are being sold something every minute of every day. Your smartphones do it. Television does it. Radio does it. And so on and so forth. To the point of where they don't hide it anymore. They call themselves influencers. What do you think they're trying to influence you to do? And for the sake of having an opportunity to sell you something, we've sold our very um, reputations to Google, to Yahoo, and so on and so forth. They know everything about you. They know how to get you to buy things because you have openly confessed it to them. You don't openly confess your faults before the Lord. And he knows you better than Google. He knows you better than Yahoo. He knows you better than Satan knows you. And make no mistake, Satan knows each and every one of us very, very well. Satan knew Simon Peter so well that Jesus had to be the one to tell him he seeks and desires to sift you as wheat. He plays your emotions against me. He, lay, he, he stands you upright to stand before me and say that I shouldn't be crucified, that I shouldn't bear such things. The words this man says of following whithersoever the Lord goes, didn't Simon Peter say something very, very similar at the beginning? How great was the humiliation of our Lord and King that even during his earthly ministry he had no place to lay his head. We don't hear him complain about it. This is the only time he mentions it in his whole ministry. How could some today insist on great prosperity from his gospel and declare that they truly know him? They want something he never claimed. Want something he never took. Want something he never had? Could the supreme ruler of the universe have claimed it with but a whisper? Absolutely. 
Great palaces would have become his. Great palaces of the earth itself would have been created and manifested before everyone's eyes had he just simply thought it into existence. But that's not what he came to do. He came in humility as a, a lamb before the slaughter, speaking not against what he came to do and taking not more than he needed to do it. Should not the body follow her head? Should not we also follow our master? Paul writes of the Lord Jesus as the head of the church, caring for the church as his bride. Should we not follow the husband? Thinking again in that physical sense, if he is the head, can he depart from, can the true body be left behind as the head goes forward? Of course not. This brings us to the certain man number two, which we know from the two texts to be a disciple of some sort. And what he addresses and brings forward is the personal loss, what he had already lost. So we look at the opportunity cost or what we could lose with the first man, and now we see what has already been lost with the second man. The second man was concerned about the wrong funeral, it seems. He should have taken up his cross. He should have died unto himself and obeyed God's will, followed after the Lord Jesus. The only funeral that he, uh, at that point, because the Lord hadn't gone to the Calvary yet, the only funeral this man should have been caught up with was the old man. And he should have been pursuing the new. Now, given the traditions of the time, we should note that this man was not likely asking simply for a few hours to bury his father nor even a day of grievance. This likely included both the funeral, possibly even a month or two of mourning that would have traditionally followed a funeral during that day. Burial of a father was so important that other religions observed, uh, other religious observances could have been suspended, daily prayers, studying of the Torah, and so on. This was a real ritual. Following the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, was to be and still is to be the highest priority. There's probably some among us, well, we know there are, that won't even budge work on their priority list for worshiping the Lord. And yet it's illustrated perfectly here that even the funeral of your own father does not come before you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. So where's IntelliShop rank there for me? Where does your job then rank for you? Timely enough, where will the Super Bowl rank for you in a week? You see, we have this problem still today. Personal loss and personal gains coming before the Lord Jesus Christ. To this man, Christ first gave the call. He said unto him, follow me. Religion teaches us to be kind and good, to show piety at home and to requite our parents. But we must not make these an excuse for neglecting the duty of God. Who would say that to honor my mother and father, they've asked me to stay home, so I must miss church? No. To honor my nation, when my nation, and she will eventually, say that church is not essential once again, and it is more importantly now illegal, who will say I must follow the law of the land? Those in Fox's Book of Martyrs didn't. They first worshipped God. John Bunyan first worshipped God. Will there be another John Bunyan in our mix? Another Moses to stand and lead the people? We desperately need that today, do we not? 
the disciple, follower of Christ, put the sepulcher before the Savior. On the master's throne of his heart rests a coffin. We talked about that a lot last Sunday, I know, but to fully illustrate this, think about that. The place where the Lord Jesus was to sit and this man's uh, heart, as far as the, motiv- the thing that motivated all of his decisions, was to be the Lord Jesus, and instead lay a coffin. Instead lay the priorities of this life, the costs of this life. Jesus shows this man to be sanctified, preserved, and called in his own statement. He says, go thou and preach the kingdom of God. This was a command to him from his master. So how do we respond? How do we respond when things seemingly are falling apart? When things seemingly get too busy? When things seemingly are out of control and we have to you know, rein it all back in again and find some semblance of normal? i got a t-shirt at home that I really like. It says, normal's not coming back. Jesus is. I think we'd be better to think about it that way every day. Normal, what we knew before 2020, not coming back. Whatever turmoil you're going through right now, this past week, maybe what you thought was normal in January 2023 is over. Maybe it's not coming back. Think again of Samaru when his daughter passed. Life before she died was normal with her, and it was to never be normal again. The Lord had something very different for him. If he had gotten himself caught up in normal and craving after normal again, he would have missed what the Lord had for him. This second man, this disciple, I can't help but think of Samaru because essentially the Lord says unto him, go and preach the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And Samaru went and did just that. Spurgeon writes again, it must be Christ first, Father next. Living commands must take precedence of duties to the dead. Soldiers cannot be excused from war on account of domestic claims. Follow me is a precept which we will need all our powers to carry out, but by grace we will obey. That's hard. I get that. It's difficult to hear that anything's more important than your daddy or your mama. I mean, as a daddy, it's difficult for me to even say it. But Christ has to be more important to my children than I am, or they will not follow him. If they follow me before following the Lord, I've failed them. And they're not a follower of the Lord in that circumstance. Literally, they're not disciples of him. They're disciples of me. I can't lead them to heaven. I can show them the gospel. But for me to do it right, I have to show them the gospel and not cast my own shadow upon it. I have to point them to one who is perfect, one who was the offering, one who was the salvation, and is still living yet today, still interceding. And if I don't do that, then they'll do like Daddy did. They'll follow me whithersoever I go. Parents, we have a great responsibility. Our children will naturally miss us when we go. But our grave responsibility is to point them to Jesus. This third man, he teaches us of personal direction. 
We saw a fear of what might be lost. We saw the consequences of what already was lost. This man is very focused on what he is currently losing. Here's another that is willing to follow Christ, but he must have a little time to talk with his friends about it and to set in order his household affairs and give directions concerning those household affairs. He seemed to have worldly concerns more upon his heart than he ought to have, and he was willing to enter into a temptation leading him from his purpose of following Christ. No one, no one can do any business in a proper manner if he is attending to other things. If I laid a request out for someone uh, in my workplace to do something, and they presented a list of buts, then I'm going to recognize that what I've asked them to do is the very last priority on the list. And I'm a dummy. Jesus knows the heart. He knows that he was already the last in the priority list of this man. What do we confess unto him? How do we live our lives? Do we do differently than this third man? I want to follow you, but... That's literally in the text. Lord, I will follow thee, but... The very first sermon I ever preached was entitled, Get Your Butt, B-U-T, Out of the Way. When we use a conjunction like but, and I'm sure I mentioned this before, it causes a reversal in direction in that sentence. So whatever you said before the but, you're now running away from with the rest of the sentence. I will follow you, Lord, but... So every time we say that, I will follow you, Lord. I will tithe to the church. I will be at every service, and I will do these things and volunteer for that, and I will go and give the gospel to my entire family. Whithersoever the Lord goes, I will go as well. But most professionals like Gary Chapman that speak of love languages and, and teach on love will warn against using words like but with your spouse because we tend to put a whole lot of glamorous, nice things before that conjunction, don't we? We know the butt's coming. I love you, dear, so much. You're the most precious human to me. The most magnificent individual in the world. But, I met someone else. But, I've met a few nicer. There's nothing good going to come after the butt. You try it. You go home. There's more homework for you. You go home tonight. Steve, you look at Marsha. Say all the nice things you can, and then try to say butt and follow it with anything that doesn't destroy what you said before it. This is what this third man does. See, the Lord wasn't looking for people to say, I will follow you. He was looking for people who would actually follow him. Was he not? This third man says exactly what we might imagine the Lord wants to hear. I will follow you. And Jesus says, oh, thank heavens. <laughs> no, he's not a supreme human being. He doesn't say, oh, thank heavens for an empty promise. I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you, Lord, but I really don't want to. It's literally the opposite of whatever was being said. Those who begin with the work of God must resolve to go on or they will make nothing of it. Looking back leads to drawing back and drawing back is to perdition. This third man had his eyes in the wrong direction and could not follow Christ 
his emphasis was me first. I will follow you, but, man, I got to check off this list of things that I want to get done first. I got a list of accomplishments that I wish to fulfill before I can follow you. But, man, think of what we're asking. Lord, if you will sustain the breath in my very lungs until I've done all the things I want to do, then I'll follow you gladly with whatever's left. Follow him first. Putting him preeminent means there, are, there is no other list. This means that we start looking at that list as if the Lord wills, if it honors God, if there's a thus saith the Lord that allows for me to do these things, and it doesn't distract from what is first, then I will do those things. Jesus knew if this man were to go home, his resolve would be lost. He would lose sight of the straight rows he was to plow for the Lord. Think of the illustration the Lord gives. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. A plowman cannot look back and make a straight furrow. One who would, uh, who would lack his commitment and focus cannot make a straight line, cannot even till a straight row. A typical plowman would have been very strong and the plow and its man would have been drawn down the field by a horse or maybe even multiple oxen. And he would have to uh, had kept those animals pulling together in the same direction and kept his plow blade in the soil, forming as straight a line as possible for seed planting that was to follow. So not only was he managing this plow, and some of them the man would stand on the, the, the pegs that come out the back to anchor it into the ground even further. Not only is he managing that, he's managing the oxen. A lot of the illustrations I looked at this week, sometimes there's even a guy or two on the side helping to drive those oxen so that he can manage the plow. So you imagine a, an operation that may at times take more than one person and just doing it by yourself with one hand. I'm sure it's going to come out great. Probably not. The Lord guarantees it. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The putting of the hand on that plow would have signified to the oxen it's go time. So putting a hand on the plow and looking back, the oxen are already driving, and now the plow is being steered with one hand. No one's managing the reins. No one's managing the other handle. And I imagine if there's a different guy coming behind to bury the seed, he's shaking a fist. This would have been very significant at the time when the Lord said it. And they would have absolutely understood what he was referencing. Is, not, is this not an accurate picture for what each is called to do? Think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Saul writes, Paul writes unto Timothy, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Essentially, he's saying, Timothy, be straight. Be focused. Have both hands on the plow. And then when he gets to the reprove, rebuke part, all of those things fall into line. Because Timothy would not have been fit to reprove or rebuke anyone if he wasn't straight with the Lord up until that point. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-9. through 9. Who then is Paul? He's our writer. And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, 
And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. So when we think of this last text there in 1 Corinthians 3, and we think of this plowman as being one who's giving the gospel, well, it was some one-handed gospel tiller that gave me uh, Catholicism. This is how we get these things. One-handed tillers constantly looking back. One-handed tillers so concerned with the world. And maybe it's the threatenings of the world. Maybe it's rewards and promises from the world. But their hands are not both surely focused. Those who would follow Calvin and Calvin only led into pedo-baptism and all sorts of error. One-hand plowman, not applying discernment, but saying Calvin got it right, going to follow him on everything that he does. Those that would follow any kind of error with one hand have not discernment because it's waggling in the wind with the other hand. They don't have the ability to focus on what's in front of them because they're not even looking at it. Their focus is behind them. Are we to focus on what's behind? I got to tell you, if I focus on what's behind, I see a lot of failures of man, full rebellion of man, total depravity of man. But when I look on ahead, I see redemption. I look on ahead and I see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the air and our persons being perfected as we meet him in the air. I see an eternity of hope and warmth as we bask in his glory. I'd much rather look ahead than look behind. This is a wonderful illustration of the Lord to three who were so willing to say, I'll follow, I'll go, I'll do. And, and we... We've now seen a couple of lessons back to back where it seems like people are being chastised for saying they want to follow the Lord. So I want to again remind you, he wasn't simply looking for people to say they'll follow. He was looking for people to follow. He was looking for people to go, to do this very work. Here am I, Lord, send me. These empty promises, even the ones we make, are recognized very foolish as very foolish before God. He knows our hearts. I want to close by thinking of Elisha. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, we'll get a chance to look at them. 1 Kings 19. My new Bible's doing that page sticking thing again. There we go. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. And Elisha here is a good model for us to consider when it comes to how we are to follow. And it says, uh, and I should give you some background, Elijah is doing as the Lord commanded him when he approaches Elisha here. And if you want to see more of that, you can read the few verses that precede this reading. But for time's sake, we'll keep going. 1 Kings 19, verse 19, Elijah found Elisha, the son of, uh, of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he, with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him. Now, at this point, it sounds like Elisha did what those guys were talking about doing in Luke 9, doesn't it? He just forsook the, the mantle. He forsook the calling of, of God through his man, Elisha, and he's run back home. 
This is a difference in words and intent, right? There'd be a difference in one coming forward today and say, I pledge my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not interested in that. He claims what he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't look for our pledges. And I'm not really a big fan of rededication, and I know that's an argument, but I'm not a fan of that either because that seems to glorify man way more than it glorifies God. He claims that which is his. We don't have to worry about rededicating or making empty promises. He's going to claim his own. But listen to what Elisha does. Again, it's not just words. And Elisha returned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, that's two, slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose, went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. Elisha went back and looked at, basically he took his old life, his old income, his old manners, and lit it ablaze. I'm not coming back to this, Elisha says. This is old man. Nate Hilly likes to ask fellow preachers, I get it, putting off the old man, putting on the new, but how do you do it? And he's asked me three times. He's got a short memory. I don't think he knows he's asked me and I didn't have an answer. But I think Elisha illustrates it for us here. He took that old man and cooked him. He took that old man and made sure he couldn't go back. How many of us have done that? We remember our sinful lives before the Lord saved us. Remember the things we got mixed up in and we went back and destroyed it. Not to destroy the evidence, but to destroy the access that this old man would have to that old life. That's what Elisha does here. Is it a sin to use oxen? Is it a sin to till the ground? Absolutely not. It is a sin to rebel against God, though. And Elisha looked at this as that was the old life. That's what I'll run back to. Simon Peter illustrates that for us. He went efficient. He ran back to it. Let's try again. The Lord taught us better. He's actively teaching us better. Whatever it was you had in that old life, whatever it is you give in your testimony of what the Lord saved you from, don't give yourself access to it. The flesh remembers. The flesh remembers the joy that it once had as it rolled around in rebellion, rolled around in that old pig pen with the prodigal, eating the pig's food. Mmm. Yum. You don't want access to that again. The dog will return unto his old vomit. That sounds disgusting. That sounds unlikely. He does. I think everybody in here has had experience with a dog. You've seen my dog do it, probably. He will return unto his own vomit. Doesn't he know better? Doesn't he remember the retching? Doesn't he remember the distaste as it came out? It's his. He still has access to it. Every time my dog's thrown up and I've cleaned it up, he's not returned to it because I got rid of it. That's what we should do. Get rid of that old vomit or you will return unto it. Starts with a sniff, <laughs> then a curiosity, then old Ezra's tongue just starts licking after it. And you do the same. So do I. If you've had a problem with pornography, burn the pornography. If you had a, a problem with pornography on your phone, Get rid of the phone. <gasps> How could we do such a thing? The Lord says that if your hand offendeth thee, what? Cut it off. Your eye offendeth thee. Pluck it out. But in 2023, we hesitate to put our phones... I mean, when's the last time you turned your phone off? Right? God didn't bless airplane mode. 
We don't have a disconnect from sin. We keep it around us. We keep it available. To kiss, this kiss to mother and father for Elisha was him honoring his parents. His slaying of likely a pair of oxen was quite literally his mortifying of prior commitments and future distractions. Let us labor to do the same. <laughs>